We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. to the Rotowire NFL podcast. I'm your host, John McCagney, joined as always by Mario Puig. This podcast brought to you by our friends over at WinBet. Uh, we got a lot to get to today, Mario. We're going to do a deep, deep dive into a handful of teams. Uh, let's lead things off. Uh, finally, you know, since the last time that we talked, uh, the Julio Jones saga is over and we know where he's going to be playing this year uh he's going to be wearing number two i believe for the tennessee titans so uh aj brown's recruitment seemed to have paid off and uh so we have some things to unpack with this so let's get into one the compensation and then two um for both sides and then uh just kind of your thoughts on on the fit for for this titans offense and and where they go from here and and uh how things also look uh, for the Falcons. So, so started off, uh, do you think that the Titans kind of got off easy as far as the, uh, as far as what they had to give up to get Julio? I'd say they gave up more or less a reasonable amount. I think though, they were also, uh, they also benefited from the, the Falcons being in a desperate position. And even the Falcons, I think benefited from the Titans being in a desperate position. Uh, if, if the other weren't in play for, for the other team, they, they could have both been left with, uh, you know, the Titans being basically too weak at receiver this year and, and uh, the Falcons at risk of getting like a, I don't know, third rounder and a fifth for Julio instead of a second. Uh, so it, it it's uh, it's good enough for both sides. I think it's a bad situation for Atlanta to have put themselves in, both in the sense that uh, I thought going with Kyle Pitts made, made only sense if you were going to try to win now with Matt Ryan, who by taking Pitts you're committing to at quarterback – uh, whether you mean to or not, and in, in you know, a three-year timeline, it's not realistic to think you can do better than Matt Ryan if you pass on Justin Fields at that spot, which they did, and then they kind right. of undermine Matt Ryan by trading Julio. I don't really understand it. Even even the cap justification, it's like, well, if if you had to move Julio Jones to sign your rookies, then you didn't have to sign Dante Fowler to a ten million dollar contract. Like your defense is just going to be bad if you have Dante Fowler as a starter going with a another going with a cheaper linebacker who lets you keep Julio on the roster. Uh you still have you still have a bad defense but now you have Julio. So I don't think they did anything but like kind of make their their team worse uh even as much as getting a second for Julio might be a 
win of some sort. It's only a win relative to some other bad scenario that never needed to happen, you know? So I, I don't really like it from Atlanta's team building, but uh, it's, you know, it's good for, I guess, Calvin Ridley, certainly Kyle Pitts, like the, any chance of getting him later than the sixth round in most drafts appears to be well past uh, in light of this trade. And on the Titans side, it's, it's definitely more justifiable for their competitive goals. Like you don't have to accuse them of tanking with this. If anything, it's like maybe they're, they're too desperately spending, you know, future assets to try to keep a sinking ship afloat. That's kind of how I see it. I think it's like, it's a trade that will be fun for the Titans offense and it'll definitely make them a better team and they're going to score more points. There's no doubt about any of that health, health permitting with, with Julio. So uh, that's all good. It's just that the reason they couldn't or were unlikely anyway to win a Super Bowl in the first place is not changed by this addition. It just makes them a more fun team, which is, which is good for us. I just, you know, the, the Titans fans, the Titans front, front office might have hopes higher than that. And I, I don't really think they can, they have any grounds to feel that way when they, the defense is in the shape that it is. Right. Yeah. That, that's the, that's a big thing to me. Um, you know, something that I've kind of felt throughout the entirety of this off season uh, was that if you were to power rank the teams that, that made the postseason a year ago and their chances at, uh, not making the playoffs this year. I thought the Titans would have been kind of my top choice, maybe other than the Steelers, um, as far as teams that made it. Um, you know, I just felt like, like you said, it's built on, on a on a premise that just needs 300 carries out of Derrick Henry. I, I think he still has the, the wheels to, to do that for another year right. or so. But, uh, you know, you get rid of Corey Davis, you get rid of Johnny Smith, you get rid of, uh, you know, Arthur Smith, the guy who kind of, you know, architect built a lot of, of, you know, what made that system so effective in recent years. And then on defense, you know, Dory Jackson's gone uh, and the defense in and of itself, like you said, was really, really bad last year too. Uh, kind of seemed to fall off a cliff. I thought it was pretty good in 2019. Um, but either way, I, I didn't feel like they were a team that was, that fit the mold of like a one, one guy away type of mm-hmm. type of squad. And so for them to get Julio, it, it definitely make, it puts them back on the, on that competitive radar and, I guess when you look at the rest of that division, you got two wins in the bank right now from the Texans. Uh, you probably at, at worst split with the Jags and uh, I would imagine at worst kind of split with Indianapolis. So yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a winnable division, all, all things considered and adding Julio Jones can only help, I, I suppose. But, you know, what do they do as far as changing their philosophy? Because, you know, if you have two alpha receivers like Julio and along with AJ Brown now, do you know? Do you scale back your your Derrick Henry usage? Do you expose Ryan Tannehill to to being more of a volume passer as opposed to being like this you know play action shot pass efficiency guy? Recently, you know, what where do they go from there? Yeah, so I could just be wrong, but I actually think that this is a pretty reassuring development for Derrick Henry because Derrick Henry was he's he was going pretty close to his ceiling price. You know, you got to take him like fourth, fifth, third overall, stuff like that, which is very high, pretty much unprecedented in recent history as far as a guy who doesn't really catch passes. It's like normally in that range, you're, you're a 60 catch running back, at least 55, something like that. And he's probably, even in a 17-game season, more of like a 35 at most catch kind of running back. So when you're that kind of running back, you need to get those carries. It, it can't be a question. They have to be there. And I thought with just A.J. Brown at receiver, along with Josh Reynolds, there was more of a risk with with the defense like they have of falling into game scripts that Henry basically hasn't seen for two or three years where they just can't run the ball right now. They have to throw the ball. And and A.J. Brown's, of course, going to do well in that scenario. 
but the offense as a whole might start putting up fewer points, getting shorter drives, uh, playing more desperately earlier in games, all of which would be not necessarily like a, you know, it, it wouldn't make Henry bad. It's just he has a very high bar he has to clear at the current price. Right. With Julio, with Julio and A.J. Brown on the field at the same time, I think they can run the ball later in games and not really worry about it as much. Like if there's if there's five minutes left in the third quarter and they're down 14, I think they're still running it with Derrick Henry because it's like, you know, you're going to get more third down conversions with Julio at receiver than you would have in the past or certainly with the alternative scenario of Josh Reynolds being the second receiver threat. And they, they have the luxury of, of running later and more into games because they know they know they can score more quickly, more reliably with Julio there if they need to later in games. So uh, I think I think that could be only good for the for the Titans offense, because you as a defense, you're never going to or at least you, you won't reach the point where you can just sell out against the pass. As, as early in games as you would have otherwise like you're going to you're going to have to be up 14 or 13 or whatever in the third quarter still taking that run set uh, that that run threat seriously um and that that's gonna you know it just it just makes it harder to guess what they're going to do ahead of time so that's that's all good stuff and and I, I think you know even even if they're moving the ball more through the air than they have in the past Derrick Henry is still going to be their main touchdown guy so if they do end up eating into his yardage uh, from scrimmage, I think there's a chance he just becomes kind of like a 20 touchdown running back instead, which, uh, you know, more or less evens out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Tw- putting 20 on the board would, would uh, yeah, that would, whew, that'd be, that'd be something else. I mean, that's, you know, we're talking Sean Alexander era of, of running back production. If we, if we reached there, um, as far as your interest in Julio Jones in, in fantasy leagues is concerned, you know, wh- where has his ADP shifted to your knowledge since this trade? And, you know, are, are you buying it at current price? So I don't know how to really tell uh, where where it's going reliably. It was starting out, I guess, kind of around, um, let's see, I guess this would be like early fourth, early to mid fourth round. Uh, that to me kind of always seemed a little bit not like disrespectful necessarily, but, but pretty close. Like at the very least, it's like, you're kind of forgetting what Julio's capable of when you let him fall that far in best ball drafts, especially where his inj- injury tendencies don't matter as much. Cause you don't have to guess right. If he's going to be good that week based on that Friday limited practice. Um, but yeah, he was going, I remember there was at one point earlier this off season, he was going later than Deontay Johnson, uh, which I, I really don't agree with at all. So uh, we'll we'll see where he's going. I so Julio was going around the early to mid fourth. It looked like a lot of the time. I know I took him in the third round a couple of times. Uh, so far, with not many drafts on Best Ball tens, there's only eight so far. It looks like Julio's price has more or less stayed the same. Uh, but we'll we'll see. No, we haven't seen like the take machines start yet. We haven't seen the uh, the internet Twitter narratives competing for for the public. You know consensus so once the public consensus is established once some you know important person uh we are not important people so it doesn't matter what we say but once some important person does, gives the dominant narrative on julio that's when the price will change if it's going to change and it looks like that moment hasn't occurred yet i wouldn't be surprised if we see people starting to lower julio but i i would assume it's a it's a bit of a downgrade because like in atlanta last year even he was drawing tons of targets per snap like he was uh, Ridley was a beast, of course, but Julio was still like, you know, the number one guy in my opinion. So uh, even if he's lost something a year later, I would have given him that favored status over Calvin Ridley in Atlanta on a team that's projected to throw more. Tennessee, I, I, I think 
they you know they throw less than Atlanta and AJ Brown in my opinion is probably a little better than Ridley. That's that's no slight to Ridley. I just think AJ Brown's insane, probably the best receiver in the league. So right. from that reasoning standpoint, you would at least by you know the way I constructed it, that would seem like a downgrade for Julio. So I wouldn't be surprised if his price gets a little lower than it was previously. But it, it seems like so far that hasn't happened. So uh, I'm going to wait before getting any more shares, if only because I just had one already. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's hard to tell where that one's going. I could imagine people getting. It, it, I guess it depends on whether the 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 horde kind of gets lower on. Derrick Henry as a result or AJ Brown it seems like that's already happening like maybe AJ Brown might slide in the ADP a little bit and if that happens I'm just gonna buy more AJ Brown because I just I I don't think you can assume that he loses to anybody in particular uh, even Julio included at least at 32 and a half years old Julio included and Julio's had enough durability troubles that I don't think you can assume any sort of significant level of share loss on the part of AJ Brown especially given that they could just throw the ball more than they have in past years. So because because those two things are both possible, like the, the durability concern with Julio is much more than it is in most other cases, and the possibility of a team with a bad pass defense like the Titans throwing more after paying a lot to take on this new pass-catching resource, that all makes a lot of sense to me too. So I, I understand that there's like a new concern detail Julio basically being better than Corey Davis certainly being better than Josh Reynolds um but to me it's not it's not tangible enough to to lower AJ Brown uh, especially you know when you got like Devonte with his quarterback concerns and uh that that shakes things up at the top Rodgers you know who, who's going on who, who knows what's going on with that that's a tangible reason to knock a guy in the rankings in my opinion this one is too speculative uh, it's it's I'm going to probably buy AJ Brown if he ends up sliding from here yeah, I, I think you, I think you have that drawn up exactly right as far as, as far as how to view AJ Brown and if there is you know a bit of a, an ADP slide from him, uh, that would only be be beneficial to to go ahead and grab him like you know if he slides to like a, an early to mid third guy all of a sudden then then oh. you know he he becomes a, a you know someone that you kind of have to just auto pick that would be in every every draft kind of thing for me if he falls into the third round i'd get very reckless with my exposure <laughs> i did that last year and uh you know i know that there were some slow weeks there right after he injured his knee in the in the opener but i think all, all things considered uh nothing really made me waver in my faith in aj brown he's still just an unbelievable talent and uh you know what you know for him to even play the full season last year on on what he did, yeah, I kind of wish he hadn't. That was a, that's a, that's one of those stories that I hear, and I was like, why were your coaches letting you play? That's insane. But uh, if he's okay now, I guess that's great. But uh, next time, just um, just take a couple weeks off, something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Grab, yeah, grab grab some rest. Um, before we get to our next team, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. This Rotowire podcast is brought to you by my favorite meal kit. Factor. I gave Factor a try, and I can tell you firsthand, eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every meal arrives fresh, not frozen, and they're chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. Every week, you'll have over 35 different options to choose from, and there's something for every diet, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, and there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after those wellness goals. One of my favorite things about Factor is the convenience. We're talking meals that are good to go in two minutes or less. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals 
They're ready to heat and eat wherever you are. There's no prep, there's no mess, no cooking, no cleanup, none of that. It's perfect if you have a busy lifestyle and you can't dedicate an hour plus each day to preparing lunch or preparing dinner. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Factor also offers options for every meal. Pancakes, smoothies, you name it. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, dinner, whatever you need, Factor has it. Factor is also tailored to your schedule, so you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals each week. Plus, you could pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. We've run the numbers over here. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be both nutritious and delicious. Head over to factormeals.com slash rotowire50 and use the code rotowire50. That'll get you 50% off your order. That's code rotowire50 at factormeals.com slash rotowire50 to get 50% off today. All right, let's move on over. Uh, we got the Eagles up next. We're going to take a look at them. Um, I, I want to lead things off with where are you when it comes to Jalen Hurts in, in 2021? Because I think that he might be the single most polarizing quarterback for fantasy purposes that uh, of this particular cycle. At least he is right now. Yeah, I can't tell what sort of distribution of these opinions is is occurring. Like, I can't tell. Is it most people are, you know, sold or not sold on Hertz and that the, the voices that you tend to hear, are they just like loud minority opinions or are these these seemingly loud opinions either way? Is this, is this like a, you know, half believe very strongly that Hertz will be good, half believe very strongly that he won't? I don't really know what the the general public belief is. I wouldn't be surprised if Jalen Hurts is a kind of player who a lot of people still haven't thought through very much. Uh, there's a, there's a, quite a bit to dig into with him going back to Alabama. Uh, Oklahoma career was interesting, of course, but there's a lot to take in there that I don't think everybody has really looked at yet. You see some very like reductive, uh, reductive kind of like narratives about him. Just people saying things like, oh, he's kind of like Lamar Jackson. And when you say that, you tell everybody that you don't really know who at least one of those players is. And it's understandable enough that someone would reach that conclusion if they just look at his stats. But when you only look at his stats, you're, you're missing quite a few details. And one of those details is that, no, Jalen Hurts is not anything like Lamar Jackson as a runner. Like Jalen Hurts is better than uh, – Jalen Hurts is more like what you would get if Russell Wilson couldn't throw the ball very well, so he had to run the ball a lot. Uh, which is still – it still could be a good enough starting quarterback in, in fantasy if he gets those reps, if he gets those carries. Yes, it will work. But what you have to worry about with him and what I don't think is getting enough attention as a possibility is that the Eagles aren't really setting him up for success. And it's it's not a normal quarterback's game that, that Jalen Hurts can play in the NFL. Like, he can't do the, the scenario of just like uh, – you know, coming off the bench like Ryan Fitzpatrick last year for the for the Dolphins and picking up the offense as it existed. Like when he's on the field, it's a different offense that you're running, or, or at least if if you run the same offense for Joe that Joe Flacco needs, and that's his backup, or who we're expecting to back him up anyway. If you run an offense that's built for Joe Flacco, that's an offense that is specifically trying to sabotage Jalen Hurts and vice versa. You're obviously not running. Uh, quarterback run des designs with Flacco. So to me, that means they're necessarily leaving one of those guys underprepared in the event that they need to play. And it could be Flacco. It could be that their 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 backup plan is that, well, if Jalen gets hurt or if we have to bench him, 
then we'll just put Flacco out there with like 20 different plays that we can actually use out of a 90 book. Uh, maybe that's their plan. I don't know. But it has to be one of those two things. You don't have two training camps to put in two entirely different offenses that are actually you know, practiced and learned to, to an effective extent. Some corner is getting cut there and they don't have it. When you look at Baltimore, by contrast, Lamar Jackson's backups are Trace McSorley and Tyler Huntley, two guys who can run. And it, they're similar. They run the same scheme, the same principles clearly as they would with Lamar Jackson with Jalen hurts. If you put him on the bench, Flacco comes in and the offense inverts. So I'm pretty worried that they just are looking at Jalen Hurts as like a one-year kind of thing and one where they're only putting a half-hearted effort into empowering him because mm. he's not a good passer. He's a below-average passer, and there's no doubt about it. He's not an accurate passer. It's not all that natural to him throwing the ball. And so you need to leverage his rushing abilities. And to credibly leverage his rushing abilities, you have to put play designs down that just do not suit Flacco and are very run heavy. Like you're going to have to run the ball more if you're the Eagles, if you want to give Hurts a shot. So uh, if they're, if they're, if they're acting like they're giving Jalen Hurts a fair shot by just having him come out and run the same offense that uh, Nick Sirianni always ran going back to the Colts or whatever, then that's just them being insincere and setting up Hurts for failure. So they have a pretext to basically move on next off season and never give him a real shot. So I'm, I'm a little nervous about that. But if you did build an offense in good faith to, to try to make Hertz a success, I do think it could work. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not an easy thing to pull off because, he's again, he's just limited as a passer. But he's definitely good as a runner. And if you establish that rushing threat and if you build the offense such a way that those threats play off each other, you can, you can account for his limitations as a passer. You can give him a better you know, room for error and, and maybe he can slip through it. But it, it'll take at least that, and I just don't know if the Eagles, A, get it, and B, if they did get it, if they're really making an honest effort. And to me, it's a high price to find out what the answer to that question is. Going in, like, the eighth round of drafts, I, I don't want to do it. Like, maybe if he was going in the 12th or something like that, I'd much rather take a last uh, you know, last couple rounds flyer on Tyrod Taylor if we're going to be chasing these this rushing production than I would want to pay up for Hertz right now. Well, I, I guess I got to – couple questions to, to toss out at you I mean how different you know didn't they kind of readjust everything for him late last, I mean obviously different coach and everything like that but once they once they you know benched Carson Wentz I mean that wasn't the same offense that Wentz was running was it right it wasn't but it was also just like a shorter part of the year and they were probably trying to add plays and practice leading up to that week things like that they, they, they did change the play calling after that but they wouldn't have you practice different things during the week and in training camp especially and i think if you're it's possible again that they're just going into the year with flacco screwed if he needs yeah to I'm, I'm i'm more inclined to think that just like they they don't really like it's like well if jalen gets hurt then yeah we are officially effed because you know obviously you're not gonna have joe do, doing those types of things and you know that's that's one way of going about it it's obviously not a great stratified strategy but you know to draw the Lamar Jackson parallel once again I mean Lamar Jackson was Joe Flacco's backup and obviously they had to to re to that offense that limited, entire... you remember how they couldn't call many plays like it no. was just because they weren't they up. weren't they weren't preparing to have Lamar Jackson start until you know it became glaringly obvious that he right. had to so I'm just saying I I worry about basically like the human condition interfering here like I know I don't doubt that Sirianni thinks that he's doing, you know, Jalen Hurts a favor basically and giving him a fair shot. But if he can't sincerely commit, and if he does, if he doesn't 
kind of uh, if he doesn't if he doesn't have the humility to like set aside whatever vision he might have had going into it and specifically rebuild it around the the central figure of Hertz. There could just be sort of motivated reasoning leading him to to sort of small decisions that work against Hertz that add up and just kind of make things more risky and more perilous than they could have been if they had somebody, you know, like Greg Roman running the offense the whole time. Not that I like the guy, but at least uh, I think he could catch teams off guard for eight weeks or so using a quarterback like Hertz. And then the adjustment comes and then you then you figure out how committed to that scheme you are and how how good you are at running it. And I just I feel like there's a lot of questions there at that price for Hertz, and there's certain conditions that if you could assure me them, then I would say, oh well, yeah, I would buy in at you know X Y price, whatever. But right now, again, it's like he's he's going about a round, just maybe a little later than a round, or sorry, a little more than a round later than Justin Herbert. And to me, there's like I don't know, there should be like four rounds between them, something like that. And uh, maybe that has more to do with Herbert being too cheap. I, I don't know. I haven't really thought it through. Um, but I've, I've been in the position where I could have took Hertz a couple times in some drafts. And I usually find myself waiting a round or two rounds and just taking someone like Lawrence. Uh, sometimes Stafford even goes later than Hertz. And uh, again, I, the more if we get solid intel that Deshaun Watson just isn't playing in Houston anymore, I think for the category of player people are chasing with Hertz, Tyrod Taylor is at worth, uh, at least worth a thought because he's so much cheaper that the risk, you know, there's definitely risk there, but the risk is immaterial at that price. Whereas eighth round, I'm still very much targeting some of my favorite players. Sure. No, absolutely. So yeah, no, you're, you're like getting in on the, on, you know, what, what should be a, a sure thing at quarterback there. And, and Jalen Hurts, as, as we know, definitely not that. Um, and then, I mean, just uh, I guess to, to your point about Philadelphia and, and casing out their future with, with Jalen Hurts one way or the other, I mean, don't you think they would have done something in the draft if they were just completely not sold on, on Jalen Hurts for on like committed to at least like really giving him this year to, to try and get him to succeed? They might have. Uh, they might have had at one point curiosity in certain quarterbacks and determined trading back from the six pick after, or sorry, they might've determined those quarterbacks wouldn't make it to six and only in that, at that point traded back. Like maybe they had no interest in fields or Mac Jones and were only interested in Trey Lance uh, and probably Zach Wilson, even though I don't think he's good. Uh, But I think that it's tough to know certain details that I, I just prefer to usually know in cases like this at prices like this uh it's it strikes me as a lot of risk and and the upside is definitely there i mean i saw that you know 37 fantasy points against the cardinals or whatever it was uh but it's it's just it, one thing that really sticks in my mind and kind of kind of makes me creeped out by this situation is it reminds me a little bit of back around 2002 or 2003 or something, Dallas hired Bill Parcells to be their their head coach. And this was a year after they drafted Quincy Carter in the second round out of Georgia. And then Bill Parcells, after one year with them, granted they did have that one year where they, they kind of failed at quarterback with Carter before they set up this plot to replace him. Uh, But they went into the year with Quincy Carter and then they signed Vinny Testaverde as the backup and Vinny Testaverde was like 43 or something at the time. He was really immobile. Quincy Carter was a, you know, he, he had a big arm, but he was also a great athlete. So it made sense to build around his running a, li- a little bit. And it was like, 
Yeah, that's weird. Why would you sign Vinny Testaverde to be a backup for Quincy Carter? They seem pretty much opposites. And then they cut Quincy Carter in training camp. And this is a very different sort of story because they were they were basically uh, cutting him because of, I should say, alleged uh, off the field issues at the time. Like He didn't get arrested or anything. They just kind of cut him one day. And Jalen Hurts has no off field concerns at all. I want to be super clear about that. And that, that was basically the issue with Carter. But you could see the way they were setting him up to be undermined, too. And they... They were almost like wanting – they were almost waiting for him to fail to have an excuse to get rid of him and go to this other quarterback that Parcells clearly just wanted to go to anyway. And I, I, I'm a little bit creeped out by just like the contrasting optics of them as players because it just – there's such divergent visions. It, it, it creeps me out. So I would like to get some Hurts exposure because I'm – I'm going to be anxious about not having a player with his kind of upside. Um, it's just, I, I guess I need to get a shot at him in like the ninth at the, the most or something like that. Like I need to wait until I'm in a draft where he slips. And so far there's always been someone who, who um, maybe they have good reason, but they're, they're convinced that he's worth the risk because of the upside. And I, I just haven't found that shot yet. Uh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm nuts. Uh, and I'm not the, not the, guy that was pounding the table for Nick Sirianni to get get the Eagles job anyway but I'll I'll give him slightly more benefit of the doubt than than to think of of Joe Flacco as his Vinny Testaverde but I will think I will say uh that Steichen offensive coordinator I think that's didn't that it was Steichen from the Chargers that they hired as offensive coordinator and I thought he did a good job with the Chargers if if, if Steichen's running the show more than Sirianni that would probably be reassuring to me okay all right so we'll we'll keep an eye on on that uh through the summer of course um, and then, you know, let's move off the quarterback position there. You know, what what are your thoughts on, on Jalen Rager going into year two? And, you know, what, what this sort of receiving packing order looks like where, where you got uh, him, you got Devontae Smith, and then uh, Dallas Goddard with, with Ertz, you know, maybe on his way out. Yeah, the Ertz question still holding a lot of sway over the way those other guys go. And I wish something would happen there because now it's getting to the point where I'm like, wait, are they not even going to get rid of him? Is, is all of this optimism about Goddard just totally going to go to waste because Ertz just goes splat in the middle of that offense anyway? Mm-hmm. That would be kind of annoying. Um, I guess I got to get more prepared for that the, the, the longer we go here. But I think Devontae and Rager are pretty clearly separately defined. And and those two from uh, Greg Ward, who I expect to pretty much get phased out of the offense, or at least to a very small role relative to what he's been the past couple of years. It should be a two tight end base kind of offense. I mean, I don't really know what what they'll do for sure. I mean, it seems like their wide receiver depth is pretty bad, so they they don't want to really test their reps there too much. It seems to me like the ideal build is kind of like a two tight end sort of thing where you can run the ball a lot, both with the running back and with Hertz. And with that, you know, two tight end loadout, that could be pretty stu- that could be pretty tough to stop. You're going to have to leave yourself a little vulnerable in the middle of the field to Miles Sanders. And then if you try to move inside to block Sanders with the dive, then Hertz can run a little bit outside. And if you get the safeties creeping up, you can start getting the wide receivers loose on posts and things like that on play action. So that all could set up pretty nicely and if if the overall health of the offense is good, then I think I I definitely don't want to bet against Devontae Smith. I haven't gotten any redraft shares yet, but I'm I'm kind of on the lookout for it because Rager I think is a good prospect still, and, and I think he'll be a good starter for them. But he's not the same type of receiver as, as Smith in the the skill set sense. Like right. Devontae Smith was just probably born with 
you know, elite route running ability. Like he's just he's just made to be a receiver. Whereas Rager's definitely more of uh, raw materials that are that are still being molded. And even in his finished form, Rager will never be as polished as a player like Smith. He can still be very useful though, and and they can indeed you know play off each other. Because with Rager, you get a lot more decoy value. He just has that shrieking athleticism that even if he's not as good at route running, he's still the kind of guy who can make the defense respect him over the top. And if if you don't respect him over the top, then your defensive back gets left in a position where he's just difficult to cover. And the guy doesn't need to be as good of a route runner to to make the catch in that situation because he's just fast enough and he can jump high enough to just get away from that coverage at downfield. Whereas Devontae Smith, can sep- he's the kind of guy who can separate in short space even when you're trying to sit on his route, even when, you, even when you're like, we got to cover Smith here. That's He's the kind of guy who can lose you there. Whereas Rager's the guy you need to pay attention to just kind of as like a chore. And if, if you don't do your chore – you pay for it, but if you do if you do what you're supposed to, you pretty much neutralize him. It's just when you do account for a guy like Rager, and if you do account for a tight end like Goddard, and the run game is working, you eventually you you sort of just run out of like extra resources, and you start slipping up, and leaks start springing all over the place, and you just can't really get it to stop bleeding. So that's the way it could work. It's just that uh, I, I do worry about the quarterback play. Like even if even if Jalen Hurts starts all year and has a good year he might have a pretty rough season as a passer. It's like we're we're definitely banking on his rushing production doing a lot of lifting there. Sure. Uh, we don't we don't care in fantasy if he has a bad year pass well, you know, if if we're other than Devontae Smith and Jalen Rager and Goddard, we don't care if Hertz has a bad year passing if he if he still has a lot of fantasy points. But it is a little bit of a risk and I guess uh I even as a Rager fan, I'll say I'll put Devontae Smith well ahead of him, uh, especially for this year, just because yeah. I I think Devontae is just he, he's got to be easy to play with as a quarterback, you know, like he's got to be, uh, he, he's, he just makes it harder to screw up with his, how punctual and just kind of, uh, innately sharp he is. So I, th- I think Smith will be their wide receiver one right away. And to me, the only question is kind of like, what does that role yield? Because it might be sort of a doomed task, but if it isn't, I think he'll do as well as anyone could reasonably expect him to. Yeah, I, I thought, you know, like, you know, we, we talked about Devontae Smith ad nauseum, you know, in the pre-draft process. Um, but I, I thought as far as fantasy landing spots went for for him, uh, there wasn't much of a, of a spot where I could have thought like, oh, he can he can really have immediate impact better that, than than uh, fitting in in Philadelphia. So I definitely uh, like him for redraft and, and his longer term uh, fit in Philly. I definitely agree with what you were saying there. Um, let's move on over. Um, Devonte Smith had a famous teammate at Alabama, Jalen Waddle. Uh, so he w- he lands with the Dolphins down in Miami. The Miami really went hard at surrounding Tua Tagovailoa with a ton of talent uh, this off season. You know, in addition to already having Devonte Parker and, and Mike Gesicki, you, you go ahead and you get Will Fuller on a prove it deal. You get Jalen Waddle into the mix as well. Backfield still a bit of a question, but. Uh, even with all that, um, I, I want to start things out at the top. You know, with, with those moves in mind, how optimistic are you on, on a year two leap from Tua? I think it's pretty easy to be optimistic, if only because his price is still pretty low. He doesn't really need to clear a high bar to be useful at his current price. It's uh, it's it's he's almost free, you know. And I don't think he was bad last year. I think he was 
certainly limited, but for a rookie and, and with the kind of off season that we had and the, him coming back from the injury that he had the year before, I just think it's, it's pretty harsh to think that he's toast based, at least based on last year's events. Like if you just, if you went into his NFL career saying like, I think Tua sucks, that's fine. And I think that person has a more kind of like coherent reason for even believing it now, uh, just because the, the season didn't, indicate anything reliably and if you try to take anything away from it too much I, I think you're just kind of motivated toward that reasoning I, I feel like it's 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 just not indicative and for a, a price that low a, a player like his or sorry like a player like him and with with the supporting cast that of his now with with Will Fuller out there uh, for 15 games anyway knock on wood Jalen Waddle out there that's so much more speed and so much faster progressing of a play every snap than when you had a uh, I, th- I think Devontae Parker is a really good athlete. I, I don't really mean to bash him. And, and Preston Williams is fine. But you don't really want a three-route runner base of Devontae Parker, Preston Williams, and Mike because that's those guys are big and they're they're good in certain capacities and they're all good for their own part. But it's it's kind of a case of, of leaning, indulging one premise too much and losing balance in the process. It's like Preston Williams is great as a, as a vertical kind of receiver when, when uh, you know – he, he's he's not the main threat. Like, you don't want to go to him every play because he's just not the kind of receiver who's who's reliable. He's more like a jump ball kind of guy. He's a downfield kind of guy. And right. when you have Gesicki, Williams, and Parker, that's a lot of length. That's a lot of downfield ability, but none of them strike quickly. The defense can just sit back on them and just kind of sit where they tend to get their targets, and they can't really threaten underneath. Leaves to Tua holding on to the ball. He probably doesn't – he can't read the defense as quickly because they're not even backpedaling as as quickly as he's used to seeing. They're just kind of s- sitting, staring, playing chicken with him, and he doesn't really know what's going on the way he used to. But when you put Will Fuller on that field and when you put Waddle on the field instead of Williams and Gesicki, all of a sudden guys are you know turning from their backpedal. They're backpedaling earlier. They're, they're opening up their hips and you're seeing the way the coverage is forming. And that should all, that should all make it easier for Tua to, to figure out what's going on during the play, setting aside even the point that just Waddle and Fuller is a lot better in general than, than Williams and Gesicki. And I guess I should back up and clarify. I think, I think Gesicki is not a great fit for this offense. I think he basically can only play slot receiver for them. And slot receiver is going to be a position held by Waddle or Fuller when they're for the most part, when they are healthy, it seems like Durham Smith plays the actual tight end snaps and snaps in that offense. So, I think Kasicki's going to be efficient and he's he's going to draw targets rapidly per snap. But I think people got to be prepared for him only playing something like 650, 600 snaps on the year. And I think you got to worry about Waddle and Fuller taking a lot from him because it, it just seems better for Tua. Uh, to his tendencies is, I mean, he was a guy who was just striking downfield bombs of short, fast guys in college for the most part and making an offense more like that definitely suits him better than one where you have Williams and Gasicki taking forever to get off the line. And you're, you're just getting rattled two steps into your drop because you've never seen receivers take this long to get downfield. And I think it'll look a lot more like the Alabama offense and, and hopefully Tua will kind of just be better for his own part in year two. Well, I mean, I, I with the with the Bama offense and think in thinking of it, you know, back back to when Tua was there, and and how it pertains, I guess, to to the uh, Mike Gesicki Durham Smythe question. Like, do do you think that they would really kind of limit Gesicki's snaps to get more Smythe like tight like tight end type of stuff on the field, or would they just kind of use? Gesicki in the role that he has been because he's been so effective at it and just kind of run with like four pass catchers out there. 
I guess that would be. Uh, they, I mean, they could, they could do that. I just think that Smythe uh, plays a different position than Gasicki. Like Gasicki is just kind of a slot receiver who plays the backup inline reps behind Smith, uh, Smythe, and even Adam Shaheen. So I, I just think he's a different position entirely, and I think he mostly runs his routes from places where Waddle or Fuller will run a lot of their routes. Uh, even Lynn Bowden, I mean, it's like I don't really expect him to totally disappear or, or Preston Williams, really. I mean, obviously they're going to be you know wide receiver five and six, something like that, but I don't really anticipate them being scratches or guys who you know play 100 snaps all year. So it's a crowded offense, and all I, I just kind of feel like Fuller and Waddle are the guys who can't lose. Like They're just too talented. They can't really lose. Devontae Parker, I think, is pretty clearly the third most talented and with some distance to spare between himself, Gasicki, and Preston Williams. But he gets nicked up a lot. He has for a long time now. He could, you know, it, it, it could just take uh, a tweaked Devontae Parker ankle for Gasicki to get put into a three-down role, more or less. You know, it's stuff like that. And I, I think they're content to go into the year with, with that sort of depth, that sort of upside depth that Gasicki gives them. But I don't really think he's a candidate for a bigger workload. I think, if anything, it'll have to get smaller. And that that was something that I thought even before they drafted Hunter Long. So I I think they're going to let Gasicki walk after this year. And, and in the meantime, they're kind of like, we're just going to sit on this depth that we have and assume injuries or whatever circumstances will just make it all work out. And I, that's reasonable enough, in my opinion. I think it's a pretty good plan. But it's, it's as far as us specifically anticipating this Gesicki breakout and timing our investments correctly this year, I'm a little skeptical of it. I think he might need to go to his next team to really break out. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, because it could be it, wrong. There's, I mean, he's effective enough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's crazy athletic and has been productive. So, um, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people are anticipating a big year out, out of him. And then uh, before we roll, um, explain this backfield. Because, it, you know, it just wasn't a great year in the draft to, to go ahead and scoop a running back, you know, other than the, than the first two guys, really. Uh, and obviously the, the Dolphins didn't, and they didn't really do anything in free agency to address it too much. So um, where are you on Miles Gaskin? I think I'm higher on Gaskin than most people, and maybe this is just me falling for an Alex Collins. And I don't know. I, I, I realize that he has low pedigree. Uh, probably lower pedigree than Alex Collins even did. But the weird thing about Miles Gaskin is the way that the Dolphins, they, they didn't let any of this get out to the press before week one last year, you know, that, that they were going with him over Jordan Howard and Matt Breida. The press, I don't know if it's because they didn't look or because they looked and kind of got fooled by the Dolphins coaches or what, but everybody went into the year thinking, okay, it's going to be Jordan Howard on first and second and short yardage and Breida is going to get, you know, 500, 500 other snaps. And Miles Gaskin is a guy who is on the depth chart behind them. And we get to week one, and it was pretty clear. He was he was their top running back in week one and splitting reps with Howard and Breida. And then by, I don't know, week three, he kind of just took over the whole backfield. And he did a really good job with it. It wasn't that he was just the best player laying around. It was like, I mean, don't get me wrong, Howard and Breida aren't great, but he displaced them and and – without any real intel on it. And there, there, was, there was no reason for that to happen other than him just convincing the coaches to that extent. And so they they seemed to double down on Gaskin by only spending that seventh-round pick on Jared Dokes, who's an interesting player, but he, he kind of just seems like a power specialist, you know, a, a guy you uh, 
use as a rotational player or short yardage kind of guy. As far as three down options, it's pretty much just Gaskin, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, Malcolm Brown has some, you know, pass blocking ability, but he's not really a ball carrier. Salvin Ahmed was Gaskin's backup at Washington. It really looks to me like Gaskin's going to get a lot of work, uh, especially given that, again, he did a good job last year already in pretty difficult situations. As a pass catcher, especially, he was very good, which was actually the question about him going into the year. Like the, the question was the third running back. Is it going to be Miles Gaskin, the, the pure runner, or Patrick Laird, the exceptional pass catcher? And <laughs> it turned out that actually Gaskin was the good runner and the best pass catcher. And in hindsight, it kind of makes sense. I mean, he had a bad combine. He's not a very athletic running back, especially when you adjust for size. But he was a four-year workhorse at Washington, including as a true freshman. All four years, he played at a very high level with good good efficiency, even at uh, very high volumes, high team shares. So Gaskin seems to just have some ability as a running back, even if his tools don't add up to be much. And with the lack of competition – with the improving pass catcher situation, like the safeties, I don't know, the safeties are going to play like four yards back further than they did last year. Like you cannot sit on the run when Fuller and, and Waddle are on the field. You just can't do it. It's out of the question. So he's going to have more room, or he should anyway. And there's also the hope, I, I don't know how realistic, but the hope anyway that the offensive line improves. And that could happen, but we probably can't take much for granted because even now, even in his second year, Austin Jackson is still young. He's still only like 21 and a half or two, 22 or something. Uh, Robert Hunt's in his second year. Liam Eichenberg, I didn't think he was a very good offensive line prospect. Maybe, maybe, we'll, maybe I'll be wrong and he'll be good. But it's those three guys who need to get better. And with prospects, it's like it can happen, but it, it's th- those guys aren't blue chips or anything. They, they could all fail. One of them could be good and the other two suck. We, we don't really know yet. All right, I'll leave you with this one. ADP toss-up. Gaskin or Mike Davis? Um, I, I kind of prefer Gaskin, but that's only because I have a lingering paranoia that the Dolph, uh, that the Falcons might add a Sony Michelle or Royce Freeman kind of guy, something like that. But I, I like them both enough f- with what we know right now. Like, I would... I prefer Gaskin over like Melvin Gordon and Javante Williams and uh, Kareem Hunt, guys like that. So uh, I find both of their prices pretty acceptable. I don't know. Okay, all right. Those are those are a couple of you know the interesting ones. Once you get outside of the of what it what appears to be a solidifying uh, top twenty four uh, at the running back position. Once you get a little bit outside of there, that's where you run into your Gaskins, your Mike Davis, Javante, um, Melgo types but that's gonna do it for us here on this week's edition of the rotowire nfl podcast again brought to you by our friends over at winbet we'll be back next week thanks for listening fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. 
Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.